Welcome to Techno, where Sophos experts debate, explore, explain, and hopefully help you to understand the often baffling world of computer security. Techno is presented by me, Paul Ducklin. And me, Chester Wisniewski. And in this episode, we are going to be talking about vulnerability types. Chester, the reason that I thought this would be an interesting topic to explore is because every Patch Tuesday when you read Microsoft's bulletins, you'll see a list of abbreviations or types of vulnerability. And they've almost become so humdrum in their abbreviations that we often don't stop to think what they mean. And I'm thinking of what I call the big four, and they are RCE, or Remote Code Execution, EOP, or Elevation of Privilege, uh, Leaks, or Information Disclosures, and last but by no means least, DOS, or Denial of Service. So let's start at the top, the one that gets the most attention, Remote Code Execution. What's that all about? Basically... It's the ability for an unauthenticated attacker to remotely inject some sort of a code into a program and get it to execute uh, against its will, if you will. I mean, it's not designed to allow somebody remotely to do something, but the remote person can run their own programs on the computer without permission. So the attacker might connect to a service that you intended to leave open, like a mail server, and find that if they send it some strange subject line, it blows up and actually executes what was in the subject line instead of saving it to disk. Or they could do it the other way around, couldn't they? They could persuade you to visit somewhere like a web page that seems perfectly innocent, and by visiting that page, your browser trips over and ends up executing what was in it without bothering to ask, are you sure, do you wish to continue? Absolutely, and and that and I think those are, are perfect examples because uh, the, you know most of the drive-by web attacks that we see causing the most problem on the web are the result of some sort of remote code execution. Whether that's taking advantage of a flaw in the Flash Player component, whether it's taking advantage of a flaw in the way that the browser renders an image, like a JPEG or a PNG, or whether that might be a Java applet. What gets sent, say, to your browser to try and trip it up? is usually code disguised as data. In other words, it's not meant to execute that code at all. It's all smoke and mirrors and subterfuge, isn't it? Yeah, I think uh, that we're going to introduce another term here, which would be shellcode, right? You know, usually when, when these attacks occur, you're, you're overrunning some sort of a buffer that was designed to hold, perhaps it's your name that you're entering into a form on a web page uh, kind of idea. And instead of putting in your name, you put in your name and and a whole bunch of space, and then some code. And, and by, by putting that in there and making it more than that buffer can hold, that shell code gets stuck into memory somewhere where it can execute and, and, and do nasty things. So for remote code execution that depends on shell code, in other words, that's program code disguised as data, the two big generic mitigations are ASLR, where you put the programs that the attacker might need to use in a different place in memory every time so that they have to guess and are likely to guess wrong, and DEP, which is Data Execution Prevention. So maybe you just want to give us a little overview of what DEP is for. Sure. Uh, the idea behind Data Execution Prevention is that if you know that you're going to be storing my name from that field, 
uh, on a web page, and that, that should never be executable. My name is simply a text string that you're trying to store and then perhaps uh, use later or stick it in a database or something. You can mark that area of memory as non-executable or, or no execution, as Intel calls it. And, and that can be enforced through hardware now. So, the, you know, your, your modern Intel and AMD CPUs have what's called a, an NX bit that can be turned on in your BIOS that says whenever an area of memory is marked to not execute, don't let the processor even run shell code. If it, even if it were to make it into that memory space, it's not executable memory space, it's just storage. Okay, next step down from remote code execution is EOP, or Elevation of Privilege. And those vulnerabilities often just get considered important rather than critical. So run us through those and tell us whether it's reasonable for them to be considered less important than remote code execution. Well, an elevation of privilege bug is exactly what it sounds like, only it's just slightly more complicated language, right? It's the ability to be an unprivileged user, a regular user of the system, not an administrator or not root on a Unix system and to acquire more privilege than you are designed to have. Now, more often than not, that usually means acquiring the administrative rights and control of the entire system. But it may just mean that you're able to impersonate another user who has more privilege than you have. Um, and, and, of course, if you're going to impersonate someone, usually you may as well impersonate the most powerful account you can find. These often are downplayed, but I, I don't really agree, as more and more organizations are finally getting users to run as non-privileged users on their systems instead of always being uh, a Windows administrative user. You know, these, thing, these bugs are becoming more and more important, and the most famous one I can think of is actually there was a print server vulnerability in Windows that was executed as part of Stuxnet. And when you start thinking about uh, large, complicated pieces of malware that may be targeting secure organizations, they're more likely than not going to come in through a non-privileged account and then once they're inside, desire a way to, to elevate themselves to be the administrator. It seems to me that to an attacker, actually combining RCE and EOP gives you the best of everything. If you can break into Internet Explorer or a PDF reader or a file image viewer or something like that with remote data that seemed non-controversial, you only get the privilege that that image viewer program had, which would typically be you or me logged in. But if the code that the shell code that you execute when you do the remote code execution can trigger an EOP, then you turn what would otherwise be a not very dangerous attack into getting root immediately, don't you? Exactly. Uh, you know, the RCE is uh, shadowing somebody in the front door, perhaps, and then the elevation of privilege is, is stealing the, the guard's key ring off the desk when he's not looking. Let's move on to vulnerability type 3 in our list, and that's the leak, or as Microsoft call it in their bulletins, information disclosure. The name kind of says it all, but what are the sorts of flaw that are classified as leaks, and why, would, why should they be considered harmful? One of the classic examples I think of is an article you wrote for Naked Security on a vulnerability like this that LastPass uh, had. And, and the real problem here was that parts of your passwords were actually being stored in memory in a, in a non-jumbled format. So something that could read memory could go and take a look and see what your passwords were from your password vault. Insecurely storing things in memory is a very common type of information disclosure uh, that you would think, oh, well, you know, who's snooping around in memory? Any application that's running that uh, somebody just injected into your machine that just gained itself root privileges through an elevation of privilege could certainly be poking around and looking in memory for things that would be interesting, like passwords. 
Well, there's a whole boutique part of the crimeware industry, isn't there, that deals with RAM scraping code. Just looking for the moment at which a credit card has been swiped and the raw data is lying around in memory. Absolutely. And, and another classic example that we've seen a lot with the developing mobile platforms like iOS and Android is, you know, mobile apps that are accidentally not using SSL to transmit something back to the service, even though maybe the PC version or the Mac version of their program does. If it's not secure on the way, and how can you tell, then that, that is a vulnerability all on its own, isn't it? And trivial to exploit by anybody who's listening. Yeah, and, it's in, and the problem with information disclosure vulnerabilities is they're almost always invisible to the average user. There's nothing obvious that happened. Usually when you're uh, attacked by a remote code execution flaw, for example, it may crash your browser. There's some indication something went wrong, right? And, and information disclosure, it's, it's difficult for laymen to ever know that anything happened. Well, I guess it's like that concern over what happens to the fingerprints in the new iPhone. And my understanding is that they're actually stored in a supposedly secure fashion on the chip and they're not shared with some central database. Because after all, if you have an information disclosure problem there, what are you supposed to do? Get a hand transplant? It's quite difficult to change your fingerprints. So, you know, even if there are just hashes of components of your fingerprints, you don't want them to get lost. So let's move on to the last and by some estimations, the least of the vulnerability types. That's the DOS or the denial of service. Now, it's exactly what it sounds like. Hey, I, I send a weird request to your web server and instead of owning it, it just crashes. That sounds to me like something that shouldn't really be at the bottom of the list of problems. Well, no, there's some quite famous denial of service attacks showing some of the clever ways it can be used, including tying up humans as the resource. Uh, there's a story uh, recently that, about a bank that had a heist going on, an electronic heist, that first the criminals created a denial of service for the bank's online services, and all the IT staff you know, ran to go deal with this denial of service problem, trying to figure out how they might be able to block, you know, the attack on the firewall and looking at this and looking at that. And while they were doing all that, the criminals were actually transferring all the money out of the bank while they were distracted. So the, the denial of service can have multiple meanings, but, but more often than not, it is either, as you say, a crash of something, or it can be the, you know, sending so many requests to a service that you're not able to field valid requests any longer, sort of the equivalent of 5,000 people calling the pizza joint all at the same time to tie up the telephone line. <laughs> so, Chester, let's go back through those four main vulnerability types, the ones that you're likely to come across month by month, the ones that in many cases have been abbreviated to some letters that just sort of maybe diminish their impact a little bit. We have RCE, remote code execution. That's typically your drive-by install or a drive-by download Dangerous because it means the attacker can be actually far away on another computer, another network, another country. We've got elevation of privilege, EOP, which can be combined with RCE, meaning he gets in, he takes over your browser. At the moment, he's Chester, but by a little more shenanigans, he can actually turn himself into an administrator. Then we've got information disclosure, and your example was reading clear text passwords out of memory. And last, but by no means least, the DOS or denial of service, where part of the required functionality of your client or server is taken out of the equation. 
How do we go about dealing with all of these in the most effective way? Is the simplest way simply patch early, patch often? Well, of course, patching is very important, but if you have to evaluate those patches and test them and things, these designations can be helpful in prioritizing. And, under, and, and a lot of that is really understanding your own network and understanding where uh, or what impacts these things may have. When you look at a Patch Tuesday update, there may be five updates for SharePoint. Well, obviously that's important for SharePoint servers, but it may not be important for other things. And, and if all of those are denial of service, but your SharePoint is only internally facing for you know one part of your network, that may not be as much of a priority as a remote code execution vulnerability in Internet Explorer, for example. So uh, you know you need to be able to understand the context of what these things mean, which is, I think, why you and I thought it was a good idea to have this chat today, so that you can effectively decide the priority of things and what testing you need to do first to get those patches out as quickly as you can. In other words, an RCE is always bad, but even though you think it ought to be the worst thing in the world, needn't be catastrophic. Whereas something that seems quite minor, hey, a guy can read a file that's supposed to be protected, if that file's got your last 30 years of diplomatic cables in, could actually be catastrophic if someone's able to get hold of it. Absolutely. I think that's a, a, a great example. And, you know, the one that uh, always irritates me when I'm uh, helping people with patches is the you know, the Internet Explorer vulnerability that the fix requires a reboot and everybody is worried about rebooting their servers. Well, if you're not going to surf from your servers, don't worry about the Internet Explorer RCE. Worry about the denial of service in the web server because the server is actually facing the Internet with the web server exposed. And obviously that's a higher priority in that situation. Nevertheless, if you don't have the time or the will or the energy to evaluate exactly whether this RCE is lower than that EOP is higher than that information disclosure, would you say the best thing to do is simply take all the patches and apply them regardless of the consequences? Uh, yeah, I think so. And, you know, occasionally patches don't always go the way they should, but uh, the, the risk of the patch being bad and causing you harm is far less than the risk of somebody exploiting you because you didn't apply it. I think you said it in a in a previous chat chat that we did. Sometimes, if you don't have the time to consider the cost of security, then you have to consider the cost of insecurity instead. And that can be quite dramatic, can't it? Absolutely. Chester, I think that's an excellent point on which to end. Let me just remind all our listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can keep track of the podcasts we've done with our RSS feed. You can follow us on iTunes. And you can get a whole back catalogue at podcasts.sophos.com. Thanks for listening, and until next time, stay secure.